going to let you guys in on a little secret. We nicknamed this episode the Matt Allen episode because he's been working on so many fun things for the magazine, we kept tapping him to come into the podcast studio to tell us about them. It was crazy. He was like, guys, I have work to do. For example, Matt helped our office handyman, Roy Berenson, who I'm sure you guys all know, sort out some work-related back pain he'd been having for kind of a long time. In return, Roy helped Matt figure out 26 useful things you can do with a heat gun. And the whole time, Matt, who is kind of our office beer expert, was coming up with a list of the 500 best beers for summer. Although we hope he wasn't doing that at the same time as testing the heat gun. We did sneak a few other people in this week, though. Kevin Dupsick stopped by to talk about getting started in sailing, and then Kevin and Peter gave us a special sneak peek into next week's sleep episode with a testing table on sleep gadgets. Go grab yourself a light summery beer from the fridge, y'all. And while you're in the kitchen, clip a binder clip around the railings on your refrigerator shelves to keep stacks of bottled beers from rolling around. We've got more cool tips where that one came from. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler, and you're listening to the most useful podcast ever. So in my head, I've been calling this segment Beers of Summer, which then gets that song Boys of Summer stuck uh-huh. in my head. Well, here to talk about the beers of summer and not boys of summer is Matt Allen, who is our local beer expert. It's fair to say you're a beer expert, not only locally. I like am you, officially. You would qualify. No, right? no, no. Yeah. I have uh, passed the beer judge certification. So he's a legit beer yeah, expert. Yeah, that's right. So this actually comes from, you're doing a story for our website, is that right? Yeah. And it's 500 summer beers. That's a lot of beers. It is. Well, I love beer a lot, so why not? Have you drunk each of the beer? Have you drunk? Rank? I have not enjoyed all of them, <laughs> and so I'm reaching out to local sources. We're sort of going state by state, okay. uh, states with a lot more breweries. Like California has like a fifth of all the breweries in the country. They will get more beers, whereas Mississippi might only have like five or six out of the 500. Right, and all their beers are made with alligator and nutria anyway. Yeah, but that's a fun twist. <laughs> yeah, Nutria beers are kind of the next. Nutria yeah, beers, yeah. I yeah. mean. Some nice smoky hard, nutria. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, hardly any of those. So we don't have time to talk about all 500 beers for obvious reasons. But we did want to ask, first of all, what makes a summer beer? You know, I think it's just anything that is refreshing. You know, it's probably not super high alcohol. I usually look for summer beers under 6%, under 5% is even better. Just so, like, you know, when you're thirsty, you don't have to worry about getting accidental drunk. Uh-huh. And you can, like, drink them in the park while playing Frisbee or volleyball or something and not get dehydrated and have to go to the yeah, hospital. Just, uh, <laughs> yeah, just public places, make sure you use cans. No glass. Oh, right. That's mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. So what conclusions have you come to beer-wise? Well, you know, I find myself gravitating back to sort of the same maybe dozen styles or so. They happen to be pretty pale in color, though, like, the darkness or color of a beer has nothing to do with how refreshing it is. Oh. Uh, yeah, if you think about, like, a Guinness, that's actually light in alcohol. It's pretty dry, and there's a little bit of a sour tang to it. So that's actually a pretty refreshing beer. Not my top five, but that's an example of, like, you know, color of a beer doesn't mean everything. Right. Which is an interesting thing about Guinness, too. They have not that many calories. I know. Which totally I remember when I learned that, and yeah. I was like, oh, man, I'm going to be drinking Guinness all the time now. Anyways, for my picks here, I just stuck to uh, great American beers that aren't super hard to find. You know, a lot of larger breweries in the country that are, you know, still phenomenal despite their size. And sort of a mix of, like, American and German influences. Okay. Because the Germans know how to make refreshing beer, man. And so you just decided to limit this to United States beers or? Well, for the 500 beers of December, yeah. Why not just focus on great American beers? There's certainly more than 500 great American beers. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so go on, would you? All right, so yeah, my picks, I'll just sort of start on the East Coast. The first one is from Jack's Abbey in Massachusetts. Okay. Uh, they're Sunny Ridge Pilsner. So this is heavily German-influenced, and this is a brewery that only makes lagers. The lagers are the more refreshing family of beer compared to ales. And so they're experts at it because they're one of the only breweries in the country that only makes lagers because they take twice as long. Their beers are really good. Uh, their beers yeah. are great. 
great. And so Sunny Ridge is a summer seasonal. It uses a lot of like floral European hops, but it's made in the U.S., so it doesn't get stale at all coming over in a shipping container from Europe. So that's a good one. Yeah. Mm. Pilsner sounds like a variety that would be very summery. It is. Most beers in the world are based off of the Pilsner to a uh-huh. degree. Pilsner, it's got some hops, but it's also very crisp and refreshing. So almost pretty much any Pilsner you come across is going to be a good summer beer. Okay. Give me another one. All right. Uh, moving to the Midwest. Favorite brewery of mine is Surly Brewing out of Minneapolis. They have a beer called Hell. Sounds summery. Oh, yeah, very summery, very hot. No, it's uh, designed after the German Helles style of beer, which just means light beer. Not light like we think of light beer. It's just like, oh, it's our pale beer, so we'll just call it light beer. <laughs> Germany sounds fun. Yeah, they've got some things figured out there right now in the beer <laughs> drinking scene. But this beer is basically designed by a brewery that got famous on its IPAs, expertly made, incredibly refreshing, lovely to drink in a park on a summer day. It's less hops than a Pilsner, still super crisp and refreshing, though. Okay, what else we got? Okay, one of the best states for finding summer beers is Texas. Because it is always oh, hot. It is hot. Yeah. As I was ask heck. There's a ton of guys around Austin that are great. They're smaller. A bigger brewery you can find more places is St. Arnold. And they make a great beer called Fancy Lawnmower Beer. <laughs> I've <laughs> been a- to St. Arnold, actually. Yeah. I had a friend who had just moved to Texas and he took me there. That is a great name for a beer. Yeah. This is, again, based off a of German style because Germans traditionally make the most refreshing beers. The Kolsch out of Cologne, Germany. And so it's sort of like a German pale ale. It's crisp. It's refreshing. But this is different because it'll have brighter hop notes, sort of a nice earthiness to it. And it's traditionally served in like smaller glasses, the idea being that it doesn't have a chance to get warm. Uh. So, yeah. But anyways, fancy lawnmower beer. It's also great after mowing the lawn, of course. Right. Yeah, yeah. I'm realizing all my beers now, for the most part, have German influence because I'm looking at the fourth one. It's Sierra Nevada Kellerweiss. This is German-style Hefeweizen, which is another just all-around great summery beer. Also, they come in those giant things, usually. Mm-hmm. I feel like if you order a Hefeweizen, you're getting like a tube of it. Oh, yeah, yeah the big Weizen glasses. Yeah. Those are very fun. There's one brewery in Germany called Schneider that has been making nothing but wheat beers since, I think, the mid-19th century. And when Sierra Nevada, one of the you know, preeminent American brewers, wanted to make a great German-style wheat beer, they sent one of the brewers over there to basically intern for six months. Learn their ways. And I'm so, in the wrong career. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so are you, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Anyways, so the brewer came back, and the result was an amazing German-style wheat beer that actually has its own fermenters styled after what they use in Germany so that the yeast reacts the same way. There's no top on it, so there's no back pressure as the yeast creates all the CO2 and alcohol. Oh. Yes. Cool. And this just means, like, during the primary fermentation, you're turning all that sugar into alcohol. It also kicks off CO2. Usually you're in a sealed tank, and so that can sort of build some pressure that pushes back on the beer. And so this is sort of a freer environment to the yeast to, uh, you know, do the thing. Yeah. Cool. How strong are these so far? They're all between, like, four and a half and five and a half. Okay. Okay. And do we have one more? We have one more that is a hybrid. So by being a hybrid, it's very American. However, it is a hybrid of German styles. Oh, hey. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Dogfish Head Sequential. Ooh, you, I, you guys, I love me some oh, I tried this. Head. Yeah, all of these beers are refreshing. This is the most refreshing. Uh-huh. Uh, so it combines the cold style that we just talked about with the fancy lawnmower beer with a couple tart but not overly sour styles, the Goza, which has a little salt to it, and Berliner Weiss, which is a old Berlin style of sour wheat beer. Ooh, that sounds good. And so it's sort of these, these three threads that come together, and then they add some black lime, a little coriander, I believe. And so it's, it's a very interesting beer. So it's, if you want to like slow down, really ponder it, be a beer nerd about it, it's phenomenal. And if you're just like at the beach and want a wonderful, lovely, refreshing beer, it is that. You know what I always like is something that you can bring to a barbecue or something, and everyone's like, oh, what's that? You got a cool thing. You brought a mm-hmm. nice thing. Uh, and it can be kind of hard to decide at the beer shops that these sound like they're all very good ones. These are all very big crowd pleasers. As a super nerd, I would love all of these beers, but I would also be very confident bringing it to like any group of people. Well, cool. These all sound great, and I'm ready. It's actually beautiful it's in New York City outside, today, so yeah. maybe we mm-hmm. should just get one of these knock today. off and get some of these. Yeah, I think we can do that. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. 
So I don't know how to sail, but I know that people like sailing. I don't know how to sail either. So how did you get in charge of the getting started in sailing package? Well, I made the mistake of pitching it. <laughs> no, I would really like to sail. To Ryan, I've, who's our yeah, editor-in-chief, like, who does sail. All about does sailing. Not, yeah. yeah, which made it harder to write. In fact, he told me that. I turned in the first draft, and he's like, so the bad thing for you is that I know all about sailing. <laughs> so sailing is the kind of thing that you can't really learn unless you go out and do it. So we did this getting started in sailing article and kind of just tried to provide everything you should know if you think you want to try it. Because you're not going to learn from a three-page magazine article anyway. Right. But these are the things that sort of like if you think you're going to do it, here's, here's hopefully the questions you'll have. Okay. So like the first main thing is if you want to take lessons, there's basically two organizations. Mm-hmm. So one's called the American Sailing Association. The other one's called U.S. Sailing. And in terms of beginner classes, they're basically the same. They both certify classes. Like if you go to most sailing schools, they'll just be one or the other. Mm-hmm. They'll be like, oh, we follow the ASA curriculum or we follow the U.S. Sailing curriculum. American Sailing as an organization is more about like pleasure boating. Like you want to go sail to Bermuda for the weekend, which I think is what Ryan does. He sails to Bermuda from here? He told me he's done it. Whoa. Yeah. I don't think he like does it every weekend, but he said he's done it. Wow. Which sounds so awesome. But then U.S. Sailing is like actually they're in charge of the U.S. Olympic team for sailing. Okay. So like they're That's more like they're more like races and competitive if you work your way up. But either way, you can take a beginner's class. Most sailing schools have one that maybe doesn't cover everything that you'd get in like a week-long beginner's class, but sort of fits it all into a weekend. Mm-hmm. So then it's nice because it's two full days. If you live someplace where you're not close to the water, you could take a vacation to someplace that is and take two of the days of your vacation and basically learn enough to be able to go rent a sailboat wherever you go after that. And it's like 500 bucks a person right. for a weekend class. Uh-huh. So that was like the first most important thing. What I thought was the second most important thing was that you don't just want the wind to like line up behind your sail and then it pushes you forward. That's what I thought you did. Right. So here's the interesting thing is that a sail is basically an airfoil. It's like an airplane's wing. Uh-huh. So basically the work of sailing, it's called trimming the sails, is that you figure out where you want to go, you point the boat there, and then you can pivot the sail like left and right using an arm mm-hmm. on the boat. And the idea is to is align... Is the boom? Yes. Hey, yeah. I know all about sailing. I'm like the sailing a sailor that ever you're, lived. You're done. I don't know. You should leave this. <laughs> no. So basically what you do is you figure out where you want the boat to go. You sort of point it that way. And then you have the wind coming at you from some direction. And you adjust the sail using the boom so that it takes on this curved shape where the air takes longer to go around one side than the other. And so it creates lift. Wait, really? Yeah. Whoa, I really I thought never I was just pushing that. you. Like, yeah. And so actually, like, Ryan was always like, you're not understanding this. Like, you basically want to stay, like, perpendicular to the wind because that's more or less where it's going to give you the proper shape. And so it creates lift that pulls the boat through the water the way that for a plane, lift pulls the plane, like, up into the air. Wow. Yeah. So you've heard changing tack, like, as an idiom, yes. I'm sure. Yeah. So, like, what that is is that the one place you can't really go is you can't sail, like, directly into the wind. But you can sail basically if the wind is coming from, like, three o'clock, you can sail into it. So it's like where you're trying to go, like if going up the coast is basically directly into the wind, Mm -hmm. what you do is you do like a zigzag pattern back and forth. Uh And that's called tacking. So changing tack is when you basically use the boom to switch the sail to the opposite side. So you start the next diagonal. So that makes sense why it would be an idiom because it means doing the opposite or doing a different thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like taking a different approach to the same end goal or something. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, so that's the thing. So it's like this weird wind thing where it's like if you've never sailed before, like you or me, you probably think like, okay, if I'm trying to go north and that's where the wind's coming from, I guess I'm not going north. I'll sail a different day. Yeah. Yeah. But no, that's not true. You can actually I I guess it makes sense because like if you were going somewhere back in the day, you couldn't just be like, well, guess I'll not. Right. It (laughs) would have made it pretty hard to to discover the world. Right, right. (laughs) Although those old like pirate ships that have like really tall masts and then they have billowing, they look like sheets. Right, they look like rectangles. Yeah. Rectangles. That looks like... Well, so figuring out how to 
use the airfoil sail was like a technological advance. Over like, that. I mean, I think it was a very long time ago, but once upon a time, it really was like you pretty much had to like get the wind behind you and then, and then push you. Go. Uh-huh. Yeah. Huh. But at some point, they figured out there's a better way to do this. Right. And then they figured out an even better way, which is put a motor on the back. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Although, I mean, sailing has its appeal, obviously. Right. Yeah. So, okay. So you decide you want to do this. You know, you go and you get your class. You know, what else did you do in your... Well, so we talked a little bit about gear, which is sort of what you would expect. I mean, you kind of just dress for the weather. There's not anything fancy about it. No, you don't need that stuff. You basically need to, like, make sure you have sunglasses, make sure you have a windbreaker, and make sure you have boat shoes. Those are kind of the three things. The sunglasses thing is actually kind of interesting because part of why you have it is that when you're sailing, you need to be able to see what the wind is doing and see if the wind is shifting. How do you see that? A flag? Well, so on the sail, there are things called telltales, actually, that flutter in the wind depending on... And when they're, like, perfectly straight out is, like, when you've got the sail aligned properly, so they help you align it. Why are there so many idioms in sailing? I don't know, but that's, like, the thing that I learned when I did this is that there's just, like, so many that, <laughs> that come, come from, from sailing. Yeah. Well, I guess sailing was, like, kind of a, a big like thing. It was, like, the gateway to the world, the thing yeah. you did. But the sunglasses are interesting because one of the things you do is you watch the patterns in the water. And I actually, I talked to an Olympic sailor who won a bronze medal at the last Olympics... And he was talking about how, like, it's kind of fun when you take beginners out because once you understand how to read the water, you can sort of be like, hey, guess what? The wind's going to change and it's going to come from there in five minutes. And then, like, it will. And they're like, how do you do that? But the sunglasses are important because, I mean, you want polarized sunglasses for sure because they get rid of the glare. So that you can get sunglasses with different colored lenses and the different colors can sort of filter out certain wavelengths of light, which increase contrast. So it's easier to see what the water's doing. And there's actually like, I read a lot about this and there's green lenses and blue lenses and gray lenses. And depending on where you're sailing, you kind of want different colors because like if you're out in the middle of the ocean where the water's deeper and it's a different color, then there's different wavelengths you want to filter out as opposed to if you're like sailing on a bay where it's probably shallower, there's probably like more greens. But so sunglasses actually are like a pretty important thing to have for that reason. And then I guess the last thing we talked about is Ryan was like, do you think we should tell people if they should buy a boat? And I was like, how could you buy a boat? But people do that, though. I feel like there is a thing where you're like, I'm going to get a boat and I'm going to learn how to do this. Yeah. Then you have a boat all of a sudden. You don't know what you're doing. I actually have a friend from high school who bought a boat, like a full-size sailboat recently, and just decided, like, I'm going to fix it up. And I don't think it was that expensive. I mean, it was like buying a used car, and he just knew he was going to have to put money into it. Uh-huh. But there's a type of boat called a sunfish, which was invented, I think, in, like, the 50s or something. And it's now it's like a class of boat. But it was like a simple model that someone came up with that wasn't very expensive to make. You know, they're not very very big and they're not very heavy so you wouldn't take them out in like harsh conditions or like 14 feet long or something mm-hmm. but they're not very expensive if you buy them new and because they've been around for so long you can get one used for like under five grand so like if you really think like oh i'm into this there is actually a way to get be able to get boat. out in the water without having to spend an arm and a leg so. that's crazy that's pretty cheap yeah. for a boat yeah and i mean like i think i have saw somewhere online that people think it's probably the most manufactured boat ever because they've just been churning them out for people who want to do this for Uh so long so there's like hundreds of thousands of them out there so if you look around there is a sunfish in your area that's not that expensive and is in decent condition Time again for your favorite segment from our brand new podcast studio on the 21st floor of oh, yeah. our office. This one is called Back Facts. Back Facts. Back Facts. Back Facts. I feel like it needs a jingle. Also, this is the first segment from the studio. This is Dang. the very first segment oh, man, from our brand know. new podcast studio, which I'm honored. looks pretty much identical to our old podcast studio, except we don't have the soundproofing <laughs> up on the walls yet. So, so it feels a little crazy. Yeah. It, it feels it weird. It does feel more spacious down here. Well, get ready. We're going to put that proofing up and it's going to get smaller. It's going to get smaller like and smaller. Claustrophobic real quick. Um, all right. Yeah. I've got some facts about the human back. So buckle in. Mine's defective. I I'm hope glad some of these are helpful. for human backs. <laughs> If you want animal backs, you'll have to have me back. back. <laughs> you have to have you back. <laughs> 
I have a bad back too. I have a very weak lower back. I had to do physical therapy in high school. Wow, very in high school. Everybody mm-hmm. in this. I'm surprised. Aren't you a office. swimmer? I like tweaked it while doing a flip turn, and then oh. I was like, I can't do anything anymore. I thought oh, swimming man. was the one thing That's that was good I for thought. your back. If you do it correctly, I think my form was wrong, and some <laughs> I was like, I don't know. Well, I'm not yeah. doing a flip turn, right? I can tell you that much. <laughs> It's been so long since I've done a flip turn. I don't even know if I could do it again. I hope so. because You can get memory. it back. I swam in high school and then didn't for a long time and then started swimming again in graduate school on a club team and had to relearn how to do flip turns and it came back. But I definitely got some water in my nose the yeah. first couple of times. I know. I feel like it'd be very embarrassing. I'd be like, I used to swim and then just like splash. <laughs> anyway, backs. Okay, here's a fact for you guys. The skin on the human back is thicker and has fewer nerve endings than the skin on any other part of your torso, which I guess makes sense because if you're like carrying stuff on your back, you wouldn't want it to be like super sensitive. Oh. Yeah. Do you think that's why? I mean, that's my non-scientific hypothesis, but... Pretty good one. Or like, I guess if you also were an animal and you're getting sun on your back all the time. Yeah, that's true. Right. Although we had hair then by the, when we were on four legs. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm very confused by science. That's cool. Yeah. And inside your back is your spine, which is a very... <laughs> interesting what would you call it? like a bone, bone collection st- yeah bone, so- <laughs> bone well skeletal structure yeah there we go kevin's okay. got it you didn't like bone collection <laughs> I, think bone- I did but there's been enough pseudoscience already <laughs> you have 33 vertebrae when you're born and then they fuse together so by the time you grow up you only have 26 what mm-hmm. do anybody's not fuse I don't know. Contortionist. <laughs> I think it would be a problem because that's like your tailbone is when it like fuses oh. together. Oh. Ah. So then you would walk around like you were a tailbone and you couldn't move. That'd be terrible. <laughs> well, that's I like, just... that's one of the things they do to fix your back, right? Is they'll fuse your vertebrae so that like if you have like a ruptured disc or something, I think. So then those vertebrae can't push against each other. That so is So like true. as you get older, like Roy probably has 22. Yeah. I actually have a friend from college who had two fused vertebrae in her neck and we said that it was her foosball. It started as like her fused ball <laughs> fused thing and then we called her her foosball. She couldn't do high impact exercise because it was dangerous. That's the end of the story. I can't tell if this is a fun story or not. Like your tone. I know. Like, is it because cool she broke her neck? Is that the part you're no, leaving no, no, out? No, I, uh, I don't know how she did it, actually. That's a good question. I'm, I actually have a friend who did break his neck, and he had to wear a halo to prom. Oh, that's rough. <laughs> and oh, when he, yikes. like, went to rent his tux, they were like, okay, what's your height and weight? And he's like, six feet, 155 pounds. Like, what size do you need? And he's like, quadruple XL. Because he had to, like, wear the shirt around the halo. <laughs> He's like, they're like, neck size. He's like, it's large. Let's see. Yeah. We have a conversation. <laughs> what else do I have for you? Oh, okay. The top vertebra on your spine is called the atlas because like in Greek mythology, it holds up the globe of your skull. Hey. That's pretty cool. That I like that. That was that's my, my favorite fact. That's my favorite back fact. Yeah. And that's been back facts. Back facts. Back facts. There was a period here in the office where everybody had back pain, it sounded like. There was Kevin, and then, like, Peter, I think you had some back pain. Twice. I and do again. Roy, poor Roy, was limping. I mean, you were really down for the count. Oh, yeah, I was hurting. So what happened here? I mean, you were doing physical therapy. 
And then, Matt, you decided to do like a story on it? Yeah, basically I pitched Roy as a story. (laughs) He was generous enough to go along with me on it. Nice. Did you ask Roy before you pitched Roy as a story? You know, it was about that time. Who could say what came first? (laughs) Who could say? The the back pain or the pitch. (laughs) So we ended up doing a story in the magazine that is called, is it called Roy's back pain? No, that that was just what we called it. It's something along the lines of like how to fix your back pain. Okay. The, The back pain repair manual. Yeah. Because you're like in pretty good shape now, I feel like. You're you're uh, sitting there yeah, and you're not... Yeah, no, I'm comfortable and I mean, I'm an old hand at physical therapy, but Matt provided a breakthrough in the form of David Reavy, correct? Yeah, uh, Chicago-based PT, works with a lot of pro athletes and then also regular folks like you, me, and Roy. Okay. And did you actually meet with him or did you call him? Yeah, no, it was, it was actually pretty interesting. He brought a folding therapy bench and we set it up in the Popular Mechanics shop and he sort of like runs you through the paces to see what you can do and you know he's very specific and he just figures out i mean he recognized stuff about me immediately you know and it was interesting and then he came up with a bunch of exercises for me to do and taught me a bunch of stuff and it's just very useful and i've been doing it with good results look i cut a truckload of firewood the other day you know without ill effect that's amazing yeah yeah no it this isn't theory it really works So how long is your regimen these days? It depends. I do some stuff that is back-specific. Every day I stretch, and some of those stretches were Revy-supplied stretches. So the minimum I'm doing is about an hour. Oh, wow. Every day? I mean, pretty much. Now, I mean, there are some days when I'm pretty tired. Like the day after I cut that truckload of fire, I was pretty tired. The next day, I just stretched. Mm -hmm. So the next day was devoted to stretching. But then I was back on schedule after that. And what kind of exercises, I mean, what are we recommending to folks in this article to do? It's a lot of stuff that sort of gets your body to work together. A lot of where Roy's back pain and a lot of other people's back pain is, is, you know, some muscles, some bones, like your your shoulder blades sort of come out of alignment. And what happens is your support muscles, they're not in the right position and they sort of turn off. So if you're like, you're hunched forward, it's harder for your core to brace as you try to pick something up. And that's sort of where a lot of the back pain comes from. Okay. And so these exercises are sort of like teaching your body to move things back to where they should be, back where they used to be, and also fire together. So it'll be things like just doing a basic squat, just down to the ground. You know, you can start by uh, just doing it from a chair. You can also do it by kneeling on the ground and just sort of coming up and down on your knees. There's another one that's uh, sort of hard to describe, but basically you're sort of on your hands and knees, and then you put your right hand behind your low back and then sort of twist up towards the ceiling. Okay, and sort of just, I can imagine yeah, that. And so you're training your, like, your back to sort of flex and contract together. Okay. So I see what you're saying. I feel like I've heard this idea before that your body gets out of alignment and then it's like muscles that are smaller and meant for other things that are not supposed to be start doing the job of supporting you. Is right, that kind yeah. of the idea? Yeah, we have some really big support muscles, but uh, if they're not called into action, we're in trouble. Right. Yeah, and some of it was just as simple. We were even joking about it because we've just completed the move here. I don't know. Every day meant lifting hundreds upon hundreds of pounds of boxes, tools. We relocated the popular mechanic shop. <laughs> I kept saying to Matt, shoulder blades down and back. <laughs> that was a Revy insight. He said, your shoulder blades are in the wrong position for heavy lifting. You know, he's got really powerful hands and forearms and he just kind of like molds you into position. I'm like, oh, okay, this is, this is where I should be. He's like, he's like, crack, you're fixed now. Yeah, well, it does serve notice like you're in the wrong position to do this work. You know, shoulder blades, flex them back, push them down, bend at the knees, put your back straight and you actually like tell yourself as you're lifting, you know, contract your core. You know, like you firm up your core muscles and you got your shoulder blades down and back and lift. Uh-huh. And you know what? It's amazing how much 
you're still lifting the same amount of weight, whether it's doing it correctly or incorrectly, but how much easier it seems mm-hmm. to lift the weight. That, I mean, for me, that was a breakthrough. Where was your back pain? Like what part of your back? Very lowest part of my back. I have a herniated disc there Ooh. between the L4 and L5, which is like the most common, right, Matt? Yeah, very common. Yeah, yeah. vertebrae. And it can happen to anybody, not just handy people, but any person. And so I've had this since, I don't know, you know. Oh, I have had back pain all my life, really, even in childhood. But the real onset of it was 2002. So I've been dealing with this for, for a long while. time. Yeah, 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 for a while. Wow. What do you got, Peter? Hopefully not what Roy started with. <laughs> I don't know. I never had a full on. I went to a PT and got it sort of fixed, but I had pretty bad form on a deadlift at the gym Ooh. and had to go in for a few weeks. But I couldn't walk. I was excited on days it would rain because I would use my umbrella as a cane and oh, not man. feel so bad. But so that got better just with work from him. And then I tweaked it again the other day. And so then I just have to kind of take it easy for a little while. Right. Now it's my shoulder. We'll do another episode oh, on that. Oh, man. Well, we could have like an entire <laughs> issue with a magazine about my stupid hip. If we ever really want to get into it, we're all old and falling apart here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All of you have got a ways to go. <laughs> we're just falling apart. And yeah, no, yeah, right. We're just falling. Yeah. We're just falling apart. Yeah, you're not there yet. <laughs> So if you look, you can do Roy's exercises. If you check out the May issue of Popular Mechanics, you can check that out and maybe also check out our doctor in Chicago. David Riviera, Chicago. So this segment is called 26 Things You Can Do With a Heat Gun. What is a heat gun, first of all? I don't think I even understood what this was when we started talking about it. Yeah, so it's sort of like a contractor's version of a hairdryer. The idea is it's just pushing hot air out, except for this is a lot more powerful and a heck of a lot hotter. Most heat guns will go up to 800 or 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, God, so definitely So, like, melt your hands. So, definitely not like a hairdryer. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So, it is not for use on people. Don't set them down side by side at night. I mean, you'll notice the difference. What do they look like? They look like a hairdryer. (laughs) (laughs) But no, no, no. But, you know, like, you know, very industrial. There's cordless models now that have battery packs on them. They don't look bathroom friendly. Okay. So what does one use a heat gun for? I mean, like the main people are using them. You use them in auto shops or modelers. Plumbers, electricians are using them. And a lot of it is just heat shrink tubing. So like if you're connecting wires and you're protecting the connection with like just a heat shrink wrap. Like shrinky dinks. It is like a shrinky dink, yes. But it's a handheld. Don't remember shrinky dinks? I don't. Well, Kevin had a sad childhood devoid of joy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I missed out on the shrinky dinks. were these plastic things that you painted or like colored on and then you put them in the oven and they shrunk in the heat. And then they would turn into like little, like you could see all your colors still, but they were small. Well, I was just playing with my friends. I preferred the crafts that got big, not smaller. Well, you're bigger, so that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Okay, so what can one use a heat gun for? Heat trick tubing, of course. That's sort of the top Shri- use. Could you use it for shrinky dings? Yeah, that's number that 27. <laughs> that's 27, okay. Yeah. You can remove hardened window putty. I mean, a lot of times just like applying heat to something can help loosen it. Like I remember in high school, I was working on an old Pontiac engine and had a stuck bolt. And so we just hit it with a heat gun so that it heated up, expanded, and sort of just loosened in the joint. Is there like a I mean, dial cool. where you choose the temperature? Some are adjustable, some are not. One of the uses also, people put like a burnt finish on wood. So uh-huh. it, it, it oh, I've it, seen yeah, that. It won't set the wood on fire. It'll just sort of toast it. You can also use it to peel paint. You can bend PVC or conduit pipes with it. You can pop it or dent from a plastic bumper. Oh. Ah, how, wait, yeah. how? You heat it up. And it pops right out. It can pop out. Oh, you yeah. don't know. 
But, you know, it softens it and you can you know, maybe <laughs> knock a little bit. You can also soften and remove decals from everything. Like a lot of people who work in like fleet maintenance, you know, if you have a lot of fleet trucks, if like say your company changes the logo, you're going to use a heat gun to take off the logos from the car or the truck. Oh, that's smart. Swap on new ones. So you can curve a hockey stick blade. It's good on sports equipment. That's pretty good. Mm-hmm. You mean curve it like toward where the puck would Do you make it? it like a cradle sort of? Oh. Yeah. yeah. Is that allowed? Most people do it's it right thing, when they get it. Right? you do with your yeah. hockey stick when you're Oh, getting that's sneaky. I didn't know they did that. I, I don't know anything about hockey. Florida, though, I'm so. from Florida, yeah. yeah. One of my favorite uses that I learned was you can repair a cut on a leather couch with a patch uh, using heat to apply it. And like so. Oh, like ironing on a patch onto a jacket. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, sort of like that. You can unkink PEX piping. What's that? It's uh, a plastic sort of piping tubing that can get kinks in it. Did this come from Roy? (laughs) Was Roy involved in the reporting of this? I work on any tool project and not consult Roy on this. That's true. Yeah. I won't even do anything in my house without consulting Roy. I know. You can patch a tarp. You can also remove uh, vinyl tiles from subfloor, which I know we deal with all the time. You can actually use it to put a mirror shine on boots or shoes. Whoa. Yeah, by uh, heating up the leather and shining it. I kind of like that. Interesting. I know. There's so much. Decloud old headlights. So your car has, the headlights are sort of clouded up. If you, you can heat it up, it'll sort of look a little glassy, and then you buff it. Because you're buffing away the top layer of glass? It's sort of like you're heating up the plastic a little bit and sort of like smoothing it out. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. You can use it to insulate windows and that, you know, you put up the uh, the plastic wrap and then you shrink it down on there. I've used it to wax skis before. You can heat up the wax, rub it on the skis, and melt it on there. Of course, great uh, use in the kitchen. You can make nachos, melt all the cheese right on top. Hey, yeah, no, right, it's right. kind of like That's, a blowtorch. I'm in on it the heat is. gun now. But can you now. use it for creme brulee? You can brulee creme brulee with what? it. Yeah, exactly. You know, a torch is always good too, but heat gun if you got it. <laughs> heat gun if you got it. Sorry. Another one I like is you can clean grill grates with it. So really fire it up there and just burn off all, like, oh, loosen up great. all the junk on there. Now, I don't recommend trying this at home without any training, but you can also use it to remove a phone screen if you're trying to repair a broken smartphone screen. Oh. Mm-hmm. What? I feel like Alex George would do that. He might. He's crazy like that. I'm afraid. I don't even want to know how that works. I'm afraid of that, yeah. You can desolder copper piping. That's great. Desolder? Desolder, yeah. Remove the solder. So if you want to take a... Or he would melt it, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you cook an egg? Can you fry an egg? You've got a thousand degrees. degrees. Yeah. (laughs) The question is, you could have a contest to see who can cook an egg from the farthest distance. Yeah, it's it's more of a question of like, (laughs) what can't you cook? I've seen people uh, hook these up to sort of rotisseries and roast coffee beans with them, which is sort of like, you've got the heat gun on longer than it's meant to be because it usually takes like seven, eight minutes to really roast coffee beans. So I don't recommend that, but basically... Basically, anything that needs applied heat, especially if it's sort of like acute application, like high and fast. Okay, I have a question. This is really stupid. Please. I look but forward to it. If you held the heat gun so mm-hmm. that it's got its heat, its heat ray, yeah, and you crack it, <laughs> and you crack an egg through it, would it cook by the time it hit the ground? No, I, th- I think that's a little much to expect. Eight hundred. Well, I mean, the, well, you have to remember. It, I think we should try it. This isn't, this isn't a heat ray. I this w- is hot air. So that's a heat ray. So what that is a heat ray. <laughs> So what will happen is you will <laughs> drop the so egg stupid. into the airstream, where it will then splatter against whatever wall is behind it. And Possibly then, cooked. Although, if it breaks up into small I'm just particles, saying, I th- yeah. Mm-hmm. The cleanup's not as hard as you think. What? Well, if you take a pin and put a, a hole on top of an egg, you could hard or soft boil an egg from the outside. Just pin it on the outside of the eggshell, as long as you put a little hole in it so to relieve the pressure. So it won't explode. Yeah. Okay. A useful one for homeowners, especially with an older place, is you can thaw frozen pipes in the winter. Um, I actually had an Airbnb over the winter uh, in upstate New York where there was a, unfortunately not a heat gun, just a hairdryer sitting on a stool down in the basement. So if the water stopped, you knew you were supposed to go down. And hair dry it. Yeah. It was a very affordable accommodation. <laughs> Sounds like it. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can dry a uh, drywall patch. Very useful. You can get on with the job. And the last one is in the food thing. Just, you can roast marshmallows. 
Oh, roasting marshmallows. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we also uh, we got to test out a few more heat guns than we normally use in our favorite. And this was, it was the most expensive one, but it's really cool for what it does. It's the Milwaukee M18 uh, lithium-ion cordless. So it's an 18-volt heat gun, so that just means it heats up a lot faster than the average 12-volt. And it's cordless. You can take it anywhere. So, like, say, your uh, Carlox froze over winter. You don't have to, like, run a long extension cord into the garage. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. This is way more than 26. I think you've undersold yourself. Well, nothing but the best for you guys. So for this week's testing table, we are doing some preliminary sleep stuff. We do have a sleep episode next week, which you guys should get very excited about. But we had so many sleep things that we wanted to talk about them before we got started on our sleep episode. I guess because none of us sleep well. (laughs) (laughs) So I actually do normally sleep pretty well. So I don't think my product that I tried (laughs) for this testing table is really for me. Because it's supposed to help you fall asleep, which I currently do not have problems with. That seems like a thing designed for the opposite effect, based yeah. on looking at it. It, <laughs> yeah. is, it looks like a torture pad. It is a torture pad. It is the Bulletproof Sleep Mat, and they sent it to me. I'm doing this biohacking story, which you will hear a lot more about once it comes out. So this is basically a mat that has... They're hard plastic they're You know what they look like? Spikes they look it. like... Do you guys have like a microplane where you have the handle part yeah. where you like stab it into the potato or whatever, oh, so yeah. to hold yeah. it? It looks like a... Or like like a, of those. like a muddler? Sometimes muddlers yes. have ends on them yes. like that? Yes, it does look Each like Each one's like so, a silver dollar size. Yes, it's got about, I, I don't know, 11 or 12 silver dollar size Yeah, it's pretty good. Everybody knows what yeah, that means. Across this whole thing. And then there's a whole bunch more going down. So, Peter, have you laid on this yet? I haven't. I'm ready. Oh, you, you got to do it. Yeah. It? Okay. I have a sweater on today. So I okay? laid on it with a sweater yesterday. It still stabbed me in the spine. Right. So the idea is you're supposed to lay on it before bed. I think they recommend at first that you start with a lesser amount of time, 20 minutes or so. And then you can move it up to like 30 or 40 minutes if you want. But I tried it at home for about 20 minutes and I hated it. Okay. And so this thing, it's butt to shoulders, right? You can either start with your butt at the bottom so that you just goes up to your shoulders, yeah. or you can start with your shoulders. You can choose where on your back you kind of want it to be. You go meat first, right? I just think you get bonier the higher up that's, you get. That's true. Well, you get bony. I'm like everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Not as bad as I thought. Now that I've lain down, I don't feel it. It doesn't feel that bad. Well, you're wearing a sweater. We'll try a t-shirt. Ow, it's worse than a t-shirt. <laughs> oh, okay. But then, once your head hits the ground, yeah, like that takes a little pressure off. Yeah, so for me, I didn't have trouble laying on it. Like, it, it hurts a I little bit, but it's fine. That. Well, you're, not, you're supposed to fall asleep. But then the other thing is, like, if you get sleepy, then you have to remove it, which seems not in the spirit of the thing. <laughs> it's not an efficient system. You know what I mean? That's not efficient. So it's just your preliminary sleep stage. Yeah, I think the idea is it's supposed to, you know, it kind of hurts, so it releases endorphins. And I did it, and it made my back itch. And I actually fell asleep much later than I normally would. So I was laying in bed itching my back. When I laid on it yesterday, and I only laid on it for as long as Peter just did, it made my back itch too. Not yet, but I'm sure it's coming. So I would not buy this. How much does this thing cost? So it's called the Bulletproof Sleep Induction Mat. It is $50. But if you think you're a good sleeper, it's not suggested that you buy. Right. I'm not the person for this, probably. Yeah. But maybe somebody who tosses and turns. You certainly wouldn't toss and turn if you had spikes under your back. I actually had that theory. Is like, I bet maybe it just makes you lie still because you're like, (laughs) ow, 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 ow. (laughs) Seems miserable. Also, I'm a stomach sleeper. That would be a very bad Actually, prep. They, the sheet that comes with it recommends that you can lay on it on your stomach to wake up in the morning. Seems like that would work. 
could also stab yourself with a knife or a fork. Yeah, that's another option. Yeah, if what you want is pain to jolt you out of your nice sound sleep, there's so you, plenty of options. So it sounds like you guys are also not on board with a bulletproof sleep induction mat. No. So, all right, what did you guys try? Well, so I wrote about this a little bit when I did this sleep story, but I've continued using it. It's called Nightingale. It's a smart white noise machine, basically. So it can do just normal white noise. You plug it into an outlet on your wall. It actually has plugs in it, so you don't lose any outlets. And plays white noise, and you can set it based on the type of room, so the size of the room, and then if it's like a room that's just like walls, they're going to bounce the sound around, or if you got a bunch of bookcases or something, so it's more absorptive. But then it can also just play nature sounds, which is actually how I mainly have used it. And it's this thing where like I tested it, and then when I brought it here to take pictures, and I thought I'd never use it again, and then slowly over time, I was like, how come I don't hear loons at night anymore? <laughs> and I brought it back home, and my girlfriend and I love it. But I did actually have to use the white noise recently because now that it's spring, the actual birds outside (laughs) are really loud. loud. Oh, my God. And so so we switched it the other night, like woke up right at dawn, which was way too early and switched it because just a phone app that you can change it from. So like from bed, switched on the phone app to the white noise and turn it up really loud and use it to drown out the real birds. That's a good test. It worked. Yeah. Yeah. Drowning out real birds with fake birds. That's the 21st century for you right there. Yeah. So how much does your nightingale thing cost? So if you get one, it's $150. And if you get a pair it's 250 and basically it's just like you can set up the pair it tells you where in the room to put them just kind of to maximize the white noise that it puts out i feel like that's a little steep i mean granted if i had to give it up now i'd probably right. go buy one because i've already given it up once and i made sure to find another one i like it a lot i think i would think about it at that price i think if it were 99 and 200 for one and two then i would do it okay Peter Martin, it's worth it to buy this thing I think if it worked, I would go white noise. We hear a lot of noise from the street. It sounds like people are in our apartment when we're sleeping. They might be. The <laughs> white noise wouldn't help, but yeah, sounds good. And 150 I actually think is not that bad, just because pillows cost so much. So, Peter Martin, tell us about your pillow. So I tried a pillow, a pillow that is supposed to help you have better posture, which I think is important because I now, I've been going to a physical therapist for my shoulder, which is just because we all type on computers, and so like the rounding of it has mm. collapsed the ligament inside and just made it really tight, Ooh. and that's expensive. So, one visit to the physical therapist, one pillow that can correct all of your neck pain and back issues. If only it worked. <laughs> I, I hated this pillow. It is the Comfort Adjust pillow, which is new. It was on Kickstarter. They're supposed to be shipping their stuff this month. They say at some point in May it'll be out there. It's 120 bucks. It has a front foam roller in it that you can select from like soft to hard. It is the part that sits under your neck. Assuming you sleep on your back. Yeah, if you sleep which on your Kevin back. Which Kevin and I don't, so that would And I also don't, which oh, probably makes don't. this a biased review. Huh. I tried, and I have. And like Kevin said, if I fall asleep on the couch or something, it's fine. I can stay on my back. But for real bed sleep, it's not going to happen. So this thing, it lets you sleep on your side or this, but it has a little divot in the top of the pillow that your head rests in. And the part that is under your neck and supporting your neck has a foam roller so you can go between soft and hard to pick what fit works for you. It did not matter. I rolled that thing around so much. I put the pillow on the floor in the middle of the night because I hated it that much and just slept on like my curled up arm, which is also a big part of why my shoulder oh, is yeah, bad. Oh yeah, that'll do it. Yeah. That concludes, <laughs> our, that concludes our sleep testing table. I think we're One pro, out of three. We're pro on the nightingale. That was pretty much it. That's our show, y'all. The most useful podcast ever is produced by the staff of Popular Mechanics and edited by Brandcasters Inc. at www.brandcastingu.com. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley and Andy Bowers from Panoply and Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief Ryan D'Agostino. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes. While you're there, leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think. And if you want to read more about life hacks of all sorts, you should check out our website, popularmechanics.com. While you're there, you can subscribe to the print and digital edition of Popular Mechanics magazine for just $13.99 a year. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler. Thanks for listening.